Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm excited about today. I'm sitting across from man, one of the good guys, Tom Hertz. Nothing about this guy represents his last name. This guy is uh, the best, uh, has never, I don't think I've ever heard this guy say anything bad about anybody. I don't think he's... Uh, done anything bad to anybody. I don't think there's anybody who in the world has ever said, Tom Hurts, I don't like that guy. So that means a lot to me when you sit across from somebody like that as opposed to somebody like me who's very polarizing and there's many people in couches all across the United States and major metropolitan cities and in comedy clubs saying my name with an expletive after it. Or before it. Or before yeah. <laughs> thank you. And so, um, before I get into my story, I want to let you guys know that I'm I'm very grateful for all the support. You guys have been so supportive, and the emails, and the letters, and the FedExes, and the texts, and uh, on Twitter has just been incredible. And it's nice to know that uh, we're making uh, some kind of an impact on you. It's very very humbling uh, to say the least. So, thank you. And my story. Uh, is an interesting one uh, for me, maybe, and hopefully for you. I um, I was running a comedy club uh, in the 80s called Play It Again Sam's. And for those of you people who don't remember me talking about this, this was a fascinating kind of comedy club because 
it had four areas of the comedy club building per se and the comedy club was just simply one part of it uh, upstairs there was a bar with a guy singing underneath a television folk music next to that was a little restaurant that looked like it was designed uh, uh from ikea next to that was a large 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 movie bar where movies actually ran from you know now that there's dvd and video and digital uh you get them but back then you had no place to get these movies that came off unless there were dollar movie theaters and so this owner would rent the movies and he would um play them three at a time upstairs and people would sit on couches in a room that was probably the size of maybe i don't know you know 20 percent of a football field and people would be drinking, eating, and having a good time watching these uh, movies. And they'd have Richard Pryor, or they'd have Mad Max, they'd have, but anything that just came off the theater. And downstairs was the comedy club that I ran and I was put in charge of when I was in college, uh, when I really didn't know what I was doing. And I'd heard through the grapevine in, in my travels to New York City, and I love traveling in New York City that something big was about to happen. And it was big because at the time, there were only a few comedy clubs that meant anything in New York City. Uh, there was Catch a Rising Star, which was on 1st Avenue and 79th Street, I believe, which is uh, no longer there. There was the comic strip that was almost across uh, the Central Park to the other side at 82nd Street and 2nd Avenue. There was Danger Fields on 1st Avenue and around 62nd Street. And basically the Comedy Cellar, which was down in uh, Greenwich Village on McDougal Street and in Greenwich Village, about a block from Washington Square Park. But I heard from the grapevine that there was an innovative, kind of eccentric man and his wife who were planning on opening up a comedy club. And this guy, whose name is uh, Carrie Hoffman and his wife Suzanne, had actually helped produce some Broadway shows, put some things up here and there. They actually were a couple that was, uh, I believe they were actors and they were eaten by piranhas in the first Piranha movie. But he was putting together a comedy club, and he was putting together his grand opening, and he wanted to open this club on the Upper West Side, where there hadn't been a comedy club, and nobody had been doing things up there, but it became a very upscale area uh, on the Upper West Side, and he wanted to cater to that group. And um, so I called him out of the blue, because I always wanted to had aspirations of doing things and getting people in New York and making things happen. And I had been going back and forth. But there was something about thinking to myself, you know, did I have an eye for talent? Could I help him get where he wanted to go? And could I make an impact on this comedy club and create a relationship where I could book people in? Because he had an innovative thing that he was trying to do where he was actually trying to pay comedians a normal amount of money or at least more money than other clubs were paying because the other clubs were paying like, you know, $5, $10. And when he opened, he had this thought process in his mind that he was going to pay people how they do on the road where, you know, somebody would, you know, the people would 
make $50 a show on the off nights, but he would give them like eight shows, 10 shows. Some people make 500, some would make more, some would make less. His idea initially was to just pay everybody, I believe, the same amount of money, but a nice chunk, like 500 a week or something like that for three people, which would be more than any comic would make probably in New York City at that time. And he was putting together his grand opening, and he said uh, to me that uh, he pretty much knew the kind of people that he wanted. I said, I don't think you do. I want you to come see what's happening here in Boston. And I brought him down, and I put a showcase together for him with everybody from Dennis Leary to Bobcat Goldthwait to, you know, you name it, just the, the greatest comedians from Boston. I put like 20 people on. And it was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable show. And it opened his eyes to the kind of talent there was out there that wasn't just locked into New York. And I kept pushing him and pushing him to book one of the people on the show for his grand opening. I thought I'd had somebody in there. I thought either I got him to do Goldthwait or, or one of those people are leery. And I was pushing and being persistent. And I finally got a call back saying, Barry, um, we're not going to use any of your people. We have our opening. I know who I want. I said, well, who are you going to book? He says, I'm going to have Mario Cantone open the show. Now, for those of you who don't know Mario Cantone, you probably know him most from the Sex and the City show and the movies. Very good friends with the creator of that show, Michael Patrick King. The middle act was a little-known name, Rosie O'Donnell, who was starting to make her way and do good things. And Carrie, in his divine wisdom, Carrie Hoffman, had seen footage and a live show of a guy who was the greatest college performer of all time at that point. He was like the Dane Cook of college performers. His name was Tim Satimi. And he was a guy who combined the stand-up, props, physical comedy, in performances in big theaters around the colleges, standing ovation guy, the highest paid guy in the colleges. Got him to come in there for like $500. So I'm invited to the opening night. I go to the opening night. I'm there. It's a very wealthy crowd, and people are wearing fur coats, fedoras. You know, I look like I've worked under my car for some reason, even though I'm wearing a suit that probably uh, resembles Jay Leno's suit from his first Tonight Show. And I'm watching the show unfold, and Mario Cantone goes on, and he's high energy, and he's very effeminate, but he's killing, killing it in front of this rich crowd that came in for free. Rosie O'Donnell goes on next. She's doing a good job. She's holding the crowd, but it's it's clear it's tougher to follow the high energy act because she's a monologist. She's just really standing there and doing the jokes where Mario's like a little singing, a little dancing, a little, but still some great comedy too. Great performer. And then the final act, Tim Satimi comes on. And you got to understand, Stand Up New York had like the smallest stage 
in the history of show business with a, these small tables and chairs still there, by the way, just jammed in like a, a, a space. It, it appeared like as big as my office, but yet with so many people jammed in. And the stage was this like it was the size of two Ritz crackers with a column coming down in the middle of it that sort of, you know, inhibited you from going around and doing things. And there's people all around you. And, you, you know, if you move up to the stage too much, half of the audience is behind you. And Tim Satimi is introduced and he's not coming to the stage quickly or whatever. People are jammed in, realize that he's struggling to get to the stage. But it appears like he's falling and tripping and doing whatever. Gets on the stage. He's wearing roller skates. Okay? He's wearing the old roller skates. And he's got, like, a, a vest. And he's got, like, a, you know, he looks like he's, like, a new age clown. Which is what he goes for. And he's trying to juggle and do whatever. But you can't roller skate on carpet, which was on the stage of Stand Up New York. And he was trapped in these roller skates and doing his act. And he was trying to do it, but he didn't have any kind of material that appealed to an upscale crowd. And slowly people started talking. And if you've ever been in a comedy club as a comedian, I pray if you're listening that you never have a situation where you're doing your act and it's silent and then people start talking because it's one of the most powerless feelings in the world and you just can't get out of it. Even if you tell them to be quiet or listen to this or I got something, you know, you might get them back once, but if they don't get you there, you're gone. And this crowd just started talking to each other slowly by slowly to the point where this guy's on stage and he can't, you can't even hear him talking. It's just like a group of people, like mass people. And I saw the look on Carrie Hoffman's face and Suzanne, uh, uh, the late Suzanne Hoffman, uh, who passed away. And... It was like a look of horror because, you you know, you have this beautiful night. You plan all the success and everything that you want to do and make happen. This is the representation of your place. And just people just are walking out and filing out while this guy is on and shaking his hand saying, Hey, Carrie, thanks, Suzanne. Thanks you for having us here. This is uh, uh, the first two people were, were really great. You know, you, you never want that as a comic when you're outside the end of the comedy club and there's the three of you, the opener, the middle, and the headliner, and you just never want to be, hey, you were really great. Hey, you, that bit about the McNuggets, unbelievable. <laughs> you Keep keep going, man. Great. Uh, yeah, keep it up. You never want that. So I see this, and I'm... I realize that this is a horrible situation, but it ends, the night finishes, and I go back to Boston. And as I was leaving Stand Up New York, I noticed this guy with a nice suit. He was a heavy set guy, and he was arguing with Carrie and Suzanne. You know, really arguing. Like, this is bullshit. My act deserves to close the show. This is a this is a, a mockery. This is a debacle. And if I don't have more money for my client to close the show, then I am going to have her walk. Now, apparently at that time, Carrie had a conversation in the back saying, hey, I'm going to switch things around a little bit for tomorrow night or do something. 
and have Rosie O'Donnell close. So he did that and have Tim Satini, Middle, and Mario open. By the Wednesday night, Tim Satini was the opening act, <laughs> Mario was the middle act, and Rosie was the headliner. On Thursday morning, Carrie calls me and says, Rosie O'Donnell quit. Her manager pulled her out of the gig. I'm going to put Mario Cantone on to close. Um, I'm going to have Tim Satimi open. Who do you have available this weekend that I saw that you can put in? And there was a little-known act named Rich Seisler who worked in Boston who had cast iron timing. And... The joke that Carrie loved that he did was he said on stage, he said, listen, um, I'm wearing a, a, an extra large sweater I just got today. Uh, a little bit of advice for all you people out there. Um, I got a bargain here. You want to know why I got a bargain? Because an extra large sweater costs exactly the same as a small sweater. I'm getting two extra yards here for nothing. And for some reason that resonated with Carrie. He said, can you get me that guy? I called Rich and he was booked in and he was there for the first weekend of Stand Up New York as the middle act between Mario Cantone and Tim Satimi. And the thing I take from this, because your manager, Carrie Hoffman, you've been managed by him for many many years and your relationship with him is really special and and Tom's relationship with Carrie is just so extraordinary and what I realized that week that's a great lesson for anybody is this is that you can work hard at everything in your career you can dot every I and cross every T and kill yourself and plan the greatest thing for your career or your business or your uh, law firm or you can go into an operation and think it's good you've got everything covered and there's always a chance in life and more so than not that something's going to go wrong and a lot of times we don't plan on what's going to go wrong and how to go in a certain direction. We're so hopeful of the best things that we work hard on going well, but that's not the case. And one of the things I respected so much about Carrie that week is he made an error in judgment booking a college comedian for an upscale comedy club. Every night he adjusted to make things better. Every night something went wrong. And halfway in, they pull out the biggest name he has in the whole lineup. But then again, he adjusts, he calls me, and because of my persistence with him, he trusted me. We put in Rich Seisler. Rich Seisler did an amazing job. The Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of the club went phenomenally well. It got incredible reviews, which were all up on the uh, stanchion outside all the time in the beginning. Many of those reviews came from that weekend. And I felt like he stuck to it. He changed the pattern a little bit. He adjusted to the bad things that happened. And he came out smelling like roses. And for all of you out there listening, 
always know that nothing in your career and nothing in your life is ever going to go exactly as planned. But know that if you keep adjusting and just keep working and, and taking the different angles and the different roads to where you're going and are smart about those avenues and even if those fail, keep going forward, eventually you're going to hit it and you're going to find the thing that's going to be the answer to the number one thing in your mind is how can I get to the next level? And if you do that, you will. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to Industry Standard. Very exciting today. My guest, Tom Hertz, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. I promise it will not be as long as the cold open. Tom is originally from Westport, Connecticut, which is a very beautiful area on the water, I believe, or near the water where uh, the Treehouse Comedy Club was, which I remember in the 80s. Uh, He went to the University of Connecticut and he uh, spent a year working for the Hartford Insurance Group in the mid 80s. But he decided that insurance was not what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. So he started trying stand-up comedy first in Connecticut, and he later moved to New York City. After about six years or so of performing on the stand-up circuit, fellow comedian, the late, brilliant, genius Richard Jenny, asked Tom to write some material for him. Soon other comedians tapped Tom as a comedic resource as well. And he worked on MTV's The John Stewart Show with co-host Howard Feller. The Stephanie Miller Show, who uh, was a big radio personality and also um, 
uh, became a television personality. I actually rented her house in the Hollywood Hills with Jay Moore. The Larry Sanders Show and HBO's Dennis Miller Live, where he won an Emmy Award for comedy writing in 1996. He switched gears again and began writing for network TV sitcoms. His first show, Spin City, took Tom from executive story editor to executive producer. Can you say moving up and doing the right thing at your job? Tom continued writing and producing on ABC's Less Than Perfect until the spring of 2003 when ABC picked up his show Married to the Kellys with Breck and Meyer, which was a show that Tom not only was the writer of, the executive producer, but also created uh, the and composed the show's title song. The show that Tom is most associated with lately is a, a show that we're going to talk a lot about, which relates a lot to the cold open which is like the little show that could and became the big show that delivered, which is Rules of Engagement, which probably was taken on and off the air more times than the seasons that it was on. Um, but they finally reached the magical number, the mother load, the dream of every executive producer and creator, which he was of that show, a hundred episodes. And of course, the big goal of syndication uh this guy as i said before is one of the nicest guys in the world and uh it means a lot to me sitting across from him and i'm embarrassed to say that i haven't had much contact with him in a while but i'm glad i'm reconnecting now please welcome my guest today it's an honor tom hertz well, thank you very much barry and it's great to be here nice to see you after all these years yeah, it's like yeah. it's you look exactly the same. Yeah, a little some more wear and tear, some wrinkles and all that. And you the same. Shorter hair than I remember. Yes, I used to have long hair down to my uh, wherever it was. And, right. And cowboy boots. I still have the cowboy boots, sadly. Right, but you got a little haircut. I got a little haircut. Yes, I did. But you look really good. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And you're always the thing I always remembered about you more than anything else. And I think... I think this is a quality that you bring to executive producing is that I always knew you as a calm person. Now, right. I, I never saw you even remotely raise your voice ever. I mean, I, I think the first question I have for you, which is normally a departure from how I normally start these things is when's the last time you ever raised your voice professionally and what was the circumstance uh there's probably just one time maybe when there's a director who i guess i didn't get along with at rules of engagement i don't know the name but we just had some trouble with blocking and i got frustrated and maybe raised my voice a little in frustration but i think that's maybe the only time other than that it's, it was smooth sailing and you know my calm demeanor uh, always was there you know what's interesting you mentioned a director because a lot of people don't know this out here in our audience but i think it's important for you to know when you're doing a sitcom normally if you're creating a sitcom and you want to get it on the air right away the network and the studio that you're working with the first thing they want to do is align you with a director who they feel has the the experience and the power and just that little extra advantage that's going to get you over the top and get you going through your first season and into your second season a lot of times 
they will take guys like this, and I'm talking, you know, uh, like an Andy Ackerman or um, James or, Burroughs, mm. now Pan Fryman, and, and, yeah. they'll, and they'll give them, like, literally, like, the keys to the kingdom. They'll give them an executive producer credit forever. They'll give them a piece of the show, like right. a back end of the show, forever. And in exchange, they're asking them, I want you to work every episode the first season, and I want you to make sure the show is going to be a hit, right. and then we'll pass it off. And what happens in future uh, seasons, there's all these open director assignments. Right, that's what it was. And so, and there's all these weeks, and the network never will give anybody all the episodes. They'll always split it up. We'll give this guy three, we'll give this guy eight, we'll give this guy four and three or whatever. And as an executive producer, you're just so busy getting your script ready and everything ready and trying to run the writer's room and make sure everybody's happy. When it comes to the open director assignment, that's the last thing on your mind because you naturally assume that, okay, well, if this one person's directed before, fine, we'll right. do it. Sometimes they'll give a new guy a shot to direct, and but a lot of times an executive producer, after he's done like 30, 40 shows and there's one... They're like, hey, you know, f fuck, somebody gave me my first shot. Let me look at this short film. Okay, you know, great. Well, you know, I want to I want to give somebody a shot. We'll give that one slot, whatever. But inevitably what happens is one of the slots is given out to somebody who might have a name that you might know, and there's not even a reputation that precedes him. You know, it could be somebody who's a former actor like Fred Savage. Right. And... And you're just, you don't even think about it. You're yeah. They're there at the table or whatever. And then you get to the night of the show, and sometimes the, the whole goal of on show night for Tom and his cast and what may, makes him a great executive producer is you want to start the show on time and you want to end earlier than you ever ended before. Right, before and the audience wants to go home. That's right, before the busload of inmates that mm. have been sent in there want to go home. Yeah, the people from the halfway house and, <laughs> you know, the YMCA, or the people on Venice Beach who were dumb enough to take the little flyer from someone and, <laughs> and say, this sounds like it might be fun. Five hours later... Yeah, with a guy uh, dancing and throwing candy and making phone calls to your parents in the audience. Right. Uh, so the key is to get done as soon as possible and keep the crowd fresh. That's the goal. And everybody is, there's two things that, I'm sorry. There's three things that make an executive producer, his cast, and everyone there happy. Okay? Number one, great craft service person. Mm. A craft service person who uses the budget they have and they're given, in, even if it's like a thousand dollars or a five hundred dollars or two thousand dollars, and it is roll. Everything is like holy shit! I can't believe this because food is mood. That's number one. Right. Number two, you want the show to end early. And get people home to their families. And third and most importantly, you want every joke that you wrote and every member of your staff that wrote and every improvised joke to fucking kill. And at the end, have the people say to you, wow, that was like the best episode of the season. Right. So when you get a director in there who's a perfectionist. And you've got the take, you've got the take. He's like, listen, I just, uh, can I do this again? Can I do this again? Every time you do the scene again, 
you burn the crowd. Yeah, it saps a little energy, takes a little longer. Yeah. yeah. So even if he did it five times, you know, five times, we're talking about maybe it's going to take three minutes, the setup of that, the note session here and there, my 10 minutes. If he does it five times, that could be an extra 50 minutes or an hour. If he does it 10 times, he could be there an extra two hours. Right. Hence, Tom Hurts losing his mind. Right. You just get frustrated and you just want it done efficiently and quickly. And I guess this one director, even during the week, there was a lot of calls up to the writer's room for me to go look at the monitor. You can watch rehearsals and, you know, all that uh, asking me, do I think this is right or do I think that's right? And I think at the, you know at some point that's when I got upset and it was like just do do your job like stop asking me every every shot every joke every moment you know we're gonna see it at the run through so that's the time you should show me everything. Yeah, I would I would imagine for him that director the one thing that could have solved anything was for him to just go up to you at the beginning of the week and say look you know every creator is different right. and I want to be the best representation of myself for you what's the process that works best for you in terms of me talking to you about these things do you like it when I ask you about everything uh, or would you prefer on the night when there's a run through or the day when there's a run through that we talk about it but he didn't do that right so I, yeah I guess that's I don't know if that was his style or whatever but maybe I should have made it clear you know, that you just want to see things at the run through. You, you can always ask questions if there's a point or the actors uh, have a question or David Spade wants to say something more spady than it's written, which I, I always allow. Uh, but yeah, it just, uh, I guess with that one week just got too much. When you, uh, this is just for our audience because I think it's important to understand a lot of times what people can do differently in their careers. I'm just using that one week as a microcosm. When you look back on that, what do you feel you did wrong that you could have done differently with him that would have changed the result of you having to lose your temper? Uh, I guess, yeah, I guess like you said the first time I was frustrated, I should have talked to him, maybe just told him how I would like things to go. And, you know, maybe not so much with the phone calls every day, all day. And just do, you know, make your choices and then let's see him at the run through and then we'll talk about it afterwards. And another strange question I have for you, but right. I think it's important because you are, you started in comedy. Yeah. And the one thing always about you that always fascinated me about your comedy and your way of being on stage, you are a very like staid, like, it would be. I never really imagined you ever really smiling or laughing on stage. Right, which you, maybe you're, we're seeing here. Yeah, I'm not a big, <laughs> I'm not a big laughing guy. It's just kind of, uh, you know, mostly in my head. And and that's what's incredible about you is like you're a paradox because on the outside you're a guy who appears like he's a very very serious dramatic guy. Right. But your your comedy is like as funny and unique and cutting edge as, I mean, you would never want your audience to be a million yous. No, because they would just be in the audience kind of nodding in, in their head going, yes, that's funny. And so, I recognize that that's a funny joke, but not being, I guess, not laughing at it. Yeah, so that's kind of strange knowing that the fact that if, when you were filming Rules of Engagement... And there were 300 of you in the crowd. 
the show would probably bomb. Right. Right, it would be the same show, but you wouldn't hear the laughter. But we just add a uh, laugh track. <laughs> you just throw a, you know, drop a brick on the uh, laugh button and leave it there for the duration of the show. <laughs> Tell me the last time any comedian said something in a special or on stage or anything that you saw where you actually laughed out loud, not holding back, hey, that was funny, like you're watching Gilligan's Island, where right. you actually, like, lost... Gilligan's Island? What? Sorry, I'm, I, thought what? I'd, I thought I'd use a reference from 1947. Yeah. Real fresh, Barry. <laughs> sorry. No, it's all right. Uh, Jesse. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, no, but, like, where you actually lost control and laughed hard. It's probably a few years ago I went to uh, an improv, maybe the Brea improv to see Dave Attell who's always hilarious and you know, he's just so funny so you know, a few drinks and Dave Attell and there was a lot of laughter that night. Uh, was it off stage or on stage? Uh, mostly on stage. Off stage Dave is, you know, sort of brooding and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not uh, uh, as, as quite as funny after the show. But, uh, yeah, he was hilarious. And, you know, comics I see on uh, cable or, you know, HBO or whatever. Todd Berry is funny. makes me laugh. Uh, but, yeah, there's mostly a lot of – it's more just kind of a smile of recognition of, like, a you know, a joke well written or a job well done. So, yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't know if I just have things running through my head all the time or it's just sort of being observational as opposed to, you know, in the moment, as they say. One of my favorite things about Dave Attell, and we talked about this mm -hmm. when you're when you're going on and and the crowd's talking or whatever. One of my favorite things that I first saw Dave do early on is like when he'd do a joke and just got no response at all. He would take his hand and grab the top of the microphone like it was like um you know just his whole hand on it and he would turn it he would pretend he was turning the mic to the left and he'd say let me turn this to funny right <laughs> <laughs> and it was just i, I always remember he that just, uh, yeah his uh, the phrases he used and his style and demeanor it's just hilarious he has a thing like people don't realize that you know when you see uh, black comics uh, a lot of them who have been successful throughout the years in that genre of the African-American kind of whole culture of comedy, a lot of the best comedians have this kind of like preacher-esque kind of thing where they, we've talked about this on the podcast, where you kind of are doing this kind of thing and the audience stays with And Attell is like almost like a white preacher. He has that rhythm about him that that, that goes forward. And, right. you, and one, of, one of the first things I remember that night when I saw him, I hope you don't mind me saying this, and, and it doesn't matter because you will mind, but uh, <laughs> uh, probably you don't want to hear these things about. But I always remember, I love to remember things about the either the style of how somebody performs or the jokes. It's either the style of how I remember they delivered it or the jokes. And the first joke I remember I seen, seeing him doing was him saying, I went to a gap with my friend. And he came out of the dressing room wearing overalls, and he looked at me and he said, Dave, what go with these? And I looked at him and I said, I'll tell you what, don't go with those. Jobs and women. Jobs and women <laughs> with overalls. Yeah. How can you not laugh Maybe at Maybe a that? mini bike? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You, yeah. you even remember. Yeah, I have a good memory for jokes. Uh, and the, what's great to know is like the greatest compliment for a comedian or a singer or even if it's a magician or whatever 
if you're a magician and David Copperfield or or Chris Angel are coming to see you at your performance right. at a smaller venue, you know that you're doing something. If you're a singer and, you know, who knows, you know, Christina Aguilera or Bruno Mars is coming to the place where you're going, that means something. Right. And when you're going to the Brea Improv to see Dave Attell, right. that means something. And also you're bringing a group of people because you want to show them Dave Attell. You want to show them what you think is funny and you know you hope they laugh too but yeah he's i haven't talked to him in a while but uh, yeah he's one of my favorites so comedians comedian as they say yes. everyone gathers in the back of the room to watch him they always did mm -hmm. um he did in new york and i'm not comparing him to this person but he would do in new york at the comedy cellar what um Sam Kinison did at the comedy store where he would take the last spot, right. the shittiest spot where there's not that many people in there, and he would just take that spot. Maybe checks were flying uh, you know, on the tables, and people were wondering, what, I paid this? Gratuity? I didn't order gratuity, you know, right. all this shit. And he would kill, and the comics would slowly walk in, and it would be packed, and it, it's a... And he's a wonderful man. You ought to get him here. I would be honored to get him here. And now that he's executive producing his shows and stuff, now I feel like I can because this is about the people who do the stuff behind the scenes but can also do it in front of the scenes right. as well. I would I would love to get him on. I just I just had Mark Marin on. It was a blast. Mm. Um, so as I like to do in these crazy podcasts, I like to go way, way, way back. Right. Way back. Mm -hmm. So... Take me back to Westport, Connecticut, and tell me what you were doing before any thought of show business came to you, and and what was the moment that happened that made you decide that, hey, I'd like to do this, and also the moment where you never, you, you said to yourself, I'm not turning back. This was the moment that happened. I'm never going back to whatever I was doing. Right. Well, at the time, I, I was living in Hartford, Connecticut. I'd graduated Yukon and uh, got a job for the Hartford Insurance Group, pro excuse me, programming computers, which I didn't study for, but they had a training program. So I figured you graduate college and you get a job. So I didn't, didn't really give it thought. And uh, I think about a year in, I realized this is not for me. I looked down the row of cubicles at my boss and I thought, gee, if I stay here 10 years, I'll have his chair maybe. So like literally the next day I handed in my resignation and also, I had gone out to see Billy, at Billy Jack's Cafe of Comedy in Glastonbury. Howard Stern was there. You know, he wasn't he wasn't what he is now. And he was hosting the funniest morning DJ in Connecticut contest. And none of them were funny. And I started to think, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of funny. I could maybe do this. So I went to open mic night the very next week with some jokes written on my hand. And it was the first time I'd ever spoken into a microphone. And did all right. Like, I got some laughs, and I think maybe I was a little hooked then, you know, from the first time. What was your best joke of that first performance? Uh, I think the only one I can remember is that I that I said if I, I worked for the Hartford Insurance Group, so if I catch anyone not laughing, I have to warn you, I will come down into the crowd and try to sell you insurance. <laughs> So that was a warning. And I, yeah, I can't, and it was uh, literally the cliche of I had, you know, a few shots and beers and the jokes I had written on my hand were running in the ink so I could barely <laughs> read them. But it was, you know, a good, excited kind of nervous. 
So I kept doing open mic night. Uh, you know, I, I stopped my job at the Hartford Insurance Group and moved back in with my mom and dad in Westport, Connecticut, uh, which is every parent's dream for their kid to do open mic night. So you you actually quit the job at the insurance yeah. company yeah, without anything else? No, I knew I didn't want to do that. I didn't like Hartford. Hartford, like they're downtown. It's sort of between New York and Boston and doesn't seem to have an identity you know, at night, it's like a bomb goes off that kills all the people, but leaves the building standing, and there's <laughs> nothing going on downtown. And uh, I, you know, we, every St. Patrick's Day in high school, we'd skip school and go to New York, and I just love New York and the energy. So I, I think I always knew I wanted to go there. So that was the plan that I would look for a job in New York. So I quit, did open mic night, and there was a comedy club probably less than a mile away from my parents' condo in Westport, the, the Treehouse which was in the basement of a hotel. That's the big joke. It's a treehouse in the basement. Get it? Why did he call it the treehouse? That's Brad Axelrod, right? Yeah, that's Brad. Because I guess it's uh, ironic or something like that. Uh, Somehow I don't think that's what it was, but I'll, I'll go with it. Right. So, so you start performing, and you're, um, and you, you, but you're not making any money, and you're living at home like... How, how did you expect to make any money? And I, I mean, normally people don't quit a job until they have something. Right. You can always perform at night and still do the job during the day. Uh, yeah, but I guess it was the combination of knowing, I, you know, I figured if there's no future in this, why stay in it and let me go home and try to get a job in New York. So I got a job waiting tables and bartending while I did open mic night. It would be Wednesday open mic night at the Treehouse in Westport. And then drive up to Glastonbury for Thursday open mic night at uh, Billy Jack's Cafe of Comedy. And then, you know, the goal is to get a paid weekend gig. And I spent all my weekends at the Treehouse watching the professional show, seeing Dom Irera and Seinfeld and Kevin Meany and, you know, great headliners. Just standing in the back, maybe watching three, four shows a weekend. You know, sort of looking at them, thinking, what are they? What do they do? They're working. They're successful. What are they doing? And you know, how can I do that? What were they doing, in your opinion, at the time? Do you do you, what you thought they were doing then? When you look back now, were they doing what you thought they were doing to make money, or is there a new perspective on it? I guess it's a new perspective that it was a passion and it wasn't you know premeditated to make money, and they were just telling a lot of. It was very professional and a lot of jokes per minute and a lot of laughs and not a lot of stammering and, you know, saying, anyway, what else is in the news? Which, you know, a lot of beginning people do. So I would watch them, not at that time aspiring to be a headliner, but just aspiring to get a little better or any information. I used to watch uh, Johnny Carson whenever they had a comedian and I would sort of keep score. I would make little tallies of how many laughs they did per set, you know. It's so odd you say that because that's one of the things that whenever I'm working with a comedian is one of my greatest mantras, the jokes per minute. Right. How many jokes do you have to maximize your set for a television set, mm -hmm. which sometimes you have to adjust as a manager because when I work with Dave Chappelle, it was never about jokes per, right. per, per minute. It was about the huggability and lovability of the story and the moments in the story where there were laughs that didn't appear to be jokes. Right. And you just hope that you, you, you're putting together the stories that had the laughs throughout that weren't planned jokes. Right. That Whereas, build to a big, you know, satisfying yeah. climax. Whereas Stephen Wright is a guy who's, you know, the jokes per, per minute are, are very big. I always say uh, 
to anybody who listened is like the hardest joke to write and perform well is the shortest one. Right. Yeah, like the most you, efficient. And If you can get a laugh in like four, five seconds or seven seconds and keep doing that, you're going to be known as a setup, punchline, setup. But, but no, most people don't do that. They have these things that have to go somewhere. Right. It's very rare. Like we talk about, you know, Howard Feller or the, the, the who is with on the Jon Stewart show as the co-host right. or the outcast kind of comic like Howard Feller or Jay London. And you just remember like, you know, even like, uh, you know, Howard Feller, if he wasn't doing well and people were walking out, he would have a joke. He would say, you know, you're probably wondering where those people are going. Um, the uh, the sound system is much better in the bar right than here. Or Jay London would be standing there and he'd say, look at me. I'm like the fourth guy from the left on the evolutionary chart. Right. And it's like right away, like in four seconds, he's got the laugh. I remember Howard Feller, if, it, if the set wasn't going well, he would say, uh, I just want to apologize for blocking the bricks <laughs> at the improv, the brick wall behind him. I tell you, you know, I, I don't know if you agree with this, but when Howard Feller was on, if he was doing like a seven minute set, I don't think, I don't really think I could laugh harder than anything in my life. I mean, right. he, when he had it going, which wasn't always because he was a guy who was misunderstood and he was had a hard life. And he looked like a guy who had a hard life. Had a hard life. Yeah. Um, and he was just, you know, like most outcast kind of comedians, they're like they're like a half step behind the rest of the world socially, but they're so sweet. Right. And so kind and so gentle and so genuine that you you just you want to be good to them. You want to do great things. You want to treat them well because you know what it felt like in high school to right. be that person. Yeah, yeah. I think stand up is a good place for outcasts in high school and people who didn't get the girl. So, which comedian did you watch at those headlining those comedy clubs that spoke to you? Their comedy spoke to you more than anybody else's. Uh, I guess maybe Seinfeld. He would came in and just so unbelievably powerful. He would just hit the stage, and from the second he spoke, people would laugh, and they would laugh for 60 straight minutes with almost no breath in between. And you leave excited, but you also leave depressed, thinking there's no possible way I can ever do anything like that, You know, which turned out to be the case with me. <laughs> it turned out to I be true. I don't believe that to be true. but Well, I did, yeah, I mean, I did all right as a stand-up, but I guess I was always a better writer than performer now what was your first big break as a as a stand-up comedian like what what happened where you're like hey man i'm i'm doing it now uh i guess when you start getting paid you know i think uh there's some booker in new jersey phil selman was his name i remember yeah and uh i think i did a set at the it was either at the improv and he was there and i came out and he said hey you're funny do you want to work some of my rooms and I was excited I said sure and I had a little you know hallmark calendar that you know they give away free and during the holidays that was my book that was my uh, date book and uh, he rattled off he just went through a month and it was like 15 rooms and as I was writing them down I was just like thrilled thinking you get 60 bucks each time 15 times 60 I could barely do the math I'm a rich man <laughs> 
And at the, at the time, I was driving a 1966 Rambler convertible, so I would be the guy who drove the other comics out to the, if they were brave enough to get in the car. So you got your gig. 25 for gas on top of that. Yeah, so between gas and time, you'd leave. I think at the time, I think I was living in Stamford, Connecticut. So by going into the improv, picking up two guys, driving out to Jersey, you'd get home at maybe 3 in the morning with, you know, a net of $40. But it was, you're excited, you know, it was, it's like the, the the day the starving artist days are the most exciting. Yeah, if you had a car as a young comedian, you're in great shape. You're going to work. Yeah, they say send the booker a headshot of your car. <laughs> send him a picture of your car and you'll work. And then another big break was when a young man named Barry Katz booked me at Play It Again Sam's. Yes, I did. Yes, you did. I think you saw me at... Uh, at Stand Up New York, the aforementioned cold yes, open Stand I did. Up New York, and I love what you did. And I, I, I wanted to bring some comics into uh, the club who I felt were doing the right kind of comedy. Oh, thank you. And I, and I booked you. I booked uh, another person who I first, because I was worried because I thought I, I got to book somebody who bridges the gap between a little more energy and material. And the first person I called was Jack Cohen, right? who uh, is now or was the executive producer or one of the producers of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno for many, many years, Right, became a writer, but he had a very a more high-energy act. He was a really compact, small guy, but good-looking, and um, but his material wasn't anywhere near the level of your material, and I would say that if you were really? sitting here, and I think he would agree with me. He was more of like an entertainer, but he did have about a third of his act that had some good concepts, or maybe even a half of his act. That right. had. And so I wanted to bridge the gap first with him, and then I would bring in people like you who were like just planted and did the great jokes right and how planted, did you f- planted the planted comedy of tom hertz yeah and how did yeah. you and how did you feel at play it again sam's uh well it was a the whole week was a i think it was a week mm-hmm. maybe a huge money losing uh event on my because in new haven connecticut the aforementioned rambler convertible the brakes fell apart <laughs> Right before the tunnel in New Haven that you go through, yeah, the brakes fell apart and I barely got over to the side of the road. So I had to have it towed off to a garage and then rent the only car that was available, which was a minivan. So (laughs) I drove the rest of the way from New Haven to Boston in a minivan. And then, yeah, between the cost of repairing the car, the cost of the minivan, and the multiple parking tickets (laughs) I got in Boston. I think I opened with that. I said I I think I got a good space... uh, tonight parking i'm in i'm in groton connecticut because <laughs> you can't not get tickets in boston and i even tried the theory of like leaving a ticket on the car <laughs> and i came out and there were two tickets on the car like that didn't work the guy must have checked but it was it was ex- it was exciting to be like an out-of-town guy and i think louis ck was also on the show yes hanging he out. was yeah he was my first client ever yeah whatever happened to him <laughs> yeah. but it was exciting yeah it was exciting. And so you work with louis and who who else did you work with do you I, remember no i can't remember i can't remember who the headliner was i think i was the middle act and yeah. maybe, maybe uh, louis opened the show but occasionally I i'd bring in specialty uh acts like paula poundstone and people like that and right. uh, and it was really really cool and so okay so you're starting to work so when do you get the inclination that hey maybe i can make some money as a writer and who out there in the comedy world shared with you hey tom 
uh, this uh, this net 40 a night at 3 in the morning. Right. I got another career path for you that might be better for you. You should try this. Who who turned you on to that? I think the first, uh, the first, well, I mean, that was the moment I committed to comedy is when I heard comedians at the Treehouse in Westport talking about doing gigs in St. Louis and at the Funny Bone or whatever. And I was like, wait a minute, you can, you get paid to do this? That was before I'd ever been paid. Like I didn't even realize you could get paid or it was a job. So I, once I realized that I made a conscious decision, like I'm not going to look for jobs. I'm just going to do this. And, uh, I guess it was Richard Jenny who you mentioned, who was hosting Caroline's comedy hour. And I, you know, it was like, one of the guys in the back of the room watching his act and writing tags for him because he was very obsessive about his act. So I wrote for uh, Caroline's Comedy Hour, you know, the little sketches in between the comedians. But you just don't go in the crowd sitting in the audience and all of a, all of a sudden somebody snaps their fingers and you have a job as one of the people on the writing staff. <laughs> what did you do to get that gig? Uh, what you just said, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, there was no writing samples or... But, I mean, you had to approach Richard, who you didn't really know that well. Right. I think I, I worked with him. I worked with him on the road. I opened for him in New Jersey, and he liked my act. And uh, as Richard did, he would ask, you know, he asked me, he said, hey, this week, will you? First, he asked something I didn't do. Will you count how many people there are? Because he was getting the door. So he had, like, a little clicker. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I don't. What am I? <laughs> did you tell him you weren't going to do it? Kind of, yeah. I estimated. I said, I don't know, a couple hundred people. Uh, but I don't know. I guess he wanted his fair share. But I would just watch his acts, and he would ask me, like, do you have any tags? Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any jokes? And I would, you know, give him my thoughts and tags and jokes, and I guess he liked them. And uh, and I can't remember. He might have requested that I open for him at other other shows, you know, just to sap my, my uh, comedic skills for his act. And then when he got the gig hosting Caroline's, he said, want to, you know, be on the writing staff. Yeah, Richard Jenny, for those of you in the audience, was one of those guys that was, um, for those of us in comedy, I think anybody who was able to sit down here, if they could be with us today, would say that he was one of the greatest comedians of our generation. Right. One of the best club comics you'd ever see. Just like a machine. I mean, a man that was so obsessed with doing great things and and tagging jokes and and getting those laughs per minute and just took it so seriously and so i mean i don't ever think i really saw him really enjoy it really enjoy anything he was so obsessed with being the best he could be right if you were to ask richard jenny what he wanted more than anything else. If he could come down here from heaven, I would hope that he, I, I think he would say all I ever wanted to be was one of the greatest comedians of all time. Right. And that was his only goal in the film and television stuff that happened with him. That was gravy. Cause for him, if he had a choice to be, have platypus man on for a hundred episodes, uh, or be the greatest stand-up comedian of all time, he'd choose that hands down. Right. And um, and to, to have somebody like that in your corner and believe in you had to be a great confidence builder. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And it was uh, it was great to have a job uh, writing. It was That was exciting because I could do that and do stand-up in New York. And I would house sit for him in L.A. I would say... And, 
one time uh, he just got a puppy and I was sitting at his house and the puppy died. Like the next morning after he left for the Montreal Comedy Festival, it had par parvo or some kind of disease from the store. So that was no good. But uh, So what you're saying is, is that you'd go to his house and house it and take care of a puppy that died, but you wouldn't take a clicker and count the number of people in the audience. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> well, people are moving around. It's hard to see how many people there are, and it's dark, and I don't know. I think he had other people who did do it, but maybe he respected me because I refused. I said, I'll write you jokes. That's more important than counting heads with the little baseball umpire clicker. I think you're right. Sorry, Rich. Sorry. I think, uh, you, I think you're right. So tell me the next thing that happened in the terms of writing. How did you move from there, and how did people find out that you were good about things? Cause right there, you're just writing tags and jokes. Right. You don't have any knowledge of how to write a half-hour sitcom. I mean, there's no knowledge of how to write on a variety show or a talk right. show. You're just writing for a host who's hosting a show with, like, five comedians, an hour show that's 41 minutes and 30 seconds. Right, and writing, like, 30-second or one-minute bits Yeah, so in how, between do you, the how do you make the transition to the next step? Uh, I think I think the next step, I don't know if there's anything in between, was Jon Stewart, who had his talk show on MTV, who just, you know, at a club once said, uh, said he had a talk show on MTV, a low-budget thing, and would I like to write for it? You know, in the clubs, I think he had just seen my act and maybe thought I was clever or wrote good jokes. So again, it was just through stand-up. You know, everything I've had it started with stand-up, and you know, that's the genesis of all the jobs and and the work. So I did that with David Tell. He was there too on the staff. Who were some of the other writers on the staff? Do you remember? It was David Tell, myself, a guy named Andrew Steele, uh, Chris Albers, uh, Al Higgins was there. Jonathan Groff for a season was and a writer. Jonathan Groff has mm -hmm. created a number of different shows, and his show now that's on is Happy Endings. That's right. He Happy had yeah. End. That I think that ended, but he did that for yeah. four years. Yeah, yeah, John's a great guy. So I wrote for John's show, and that went from MTV to syndication. When Arsenio retired or left, uh, they tried John's show out in the spot in syndication. So that got me into the Writers Guild because it was a you know I guess. This cable wasn't covered then. Explain to our audience, which is important coming from somebody like you, what it means to go from an MTV non-union salary right. to the WGA Writers Guild of America. Explain to our audience what that means and what that entails, not only just in terms of cred, respect, and the difference in money. Well, it's it's more. It's more money. It's not less. Yeah, there's a minimum. There's a guild minimum which at the time was like, I'm a billionaire. At the time, it was like, at that time, 20 years ago, it was around $3,000 a week or a little under. No, yeah, for, that, it, for that kind of show, it was a little under that. But Yeah, it was a little over two maybe. Yeah. And it was ridiculous when you've, you've sort of recently been making $40 net New Jersey. And because what happens in a writing job, the Writers Guild of America, what happens is when you're doing a talk show, the talent who are on camera... They don't get paid for off weeks unless because they're on camera. Right. But a writer 
Now, granted, there are certain weeks you don't get paid for off weeks, but there is many, many weeks that you get paid that you're working when the show isn't going. Right. The show may be dark, but you're still writing. And you're making that money. So if you can imagine Tom is going from, I believe, that making $500 a week as a writer on the non-union show, maybe $750. Right. And now he's going up to... And not getting paid on certain off weeks. And now he's up to $2,250 a week. And he's going to be working God knows what, 40 weeks or something like that. It seems like you're a millionaire. Right. Yeah, it was really exciting. And you could still do stand-up at night. So, and it was MTV. So it was, and it was in the heyday of MTV. So it was just an exciting place to be and work. But uh, And the president of MTV at that time? Was that Tom Freston or... Tom Freston was Doug Herzog there. At yeah, that Doug time? Herzog was there, I That's believe. Right. Yeah, now the president of Comedy Central and TV Land and Spike and oversees all the Viacom stuff. Right, right. Okay, so you're on that show. That show gets canceled. Yeah, and then um, you do a uh, Stephanie Miller show. Talk about how the Larry Sanders show came about. Was that before Dennis Miller? Uh, that was. Like after my first season of Dennis Miller. All right. So let's, I'm sorry, we'll go back. So talk about how you got the Dennis Miller show, because to me at the time, when I first saw the Dennis Miller live show, um, you know, it's something you never forget because it's like here you see a comedian who you respect. Dennis Miller was the kind of comic for those of you who don't really spend time listening to comedy from guys from the past. Just, you know, find the White Album on your digital resource and 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 listen to that and, and tell me if you know many comedians that can do what he did in that album. I mean, it's just, it's like the guy was in another league. Right. And so when Dennis Miller Live came about, you're not only seeing a show, but you're seeing a live show with a comedian, which I had never seen a live television show with a comedian before, let alone a live comedy show where he's doing a monologue that's in his lane that seems like the monologue is like one-third of the entire show. Yeah, it was. It was like a third monologue, a third guest, and a third, you know, pictures up on the big screen. Yeah, and so to me, anybody who was associated with that show had to be of the highest caliber and I would always look at the names that were on the credits. Right. And, uh, of course, throughout the years, your name was on the credits. So tell me how that came about, because there were so many great people who worked there. Right. Well, at this, I came to L.A. to write for Stephanie Miller, the radio talk show host. And she had uh, a late night talk show. You know, they gave that a shot. I think it was Disney or Buena Vista or whatever. And... It was approaching December when it was time to find out if it was renewed or not. And I got a call from Eddie Feldman, a former comic. Yeah, great guy who was the head writer at Dennis Miller Live. And he said, A wonderful guy. And again, a former comic. Right, right. So he said that there, you know, had a couple of spots to fill and would I write up a submission? I guess by the Writers Guild, you're not supposed to write specific jokes and things, but I didn't mind. I wrote jokes. And there's certain things as a writer and as a performer and as an actor that if you're going to get to the next level you have to break the rules yeah and there isn't any writer that i know that's ever gotten a job on a talk show or a game show Mm -hmm. or 
even a sitcom that has not written a submission to get it. Yeah, specifically for that show. Which you're not supposed to do. There isn't any, most actors right. I know of that want to get a job, if they really want to get the job, they have to figure out how to do something out of the box. Yes, do people get jobs doing the normal thing, mm -hmm. doing it the normal way? Yes, they do. But for the most part, if you're a writer, you got to do certain things that, that, that twist the rules to get it. Right. Uh, I mean, you don't want to be the guy who doesn't do it and let other people do it. So I wrote up a submission for Dennis. And when I wrote it, I thought it was good. And I thought, geez, I'm worried about if I get this job, I already have a job. And I did get the Dennis Miller live offer. And I went to the Stephanie Miller people and asked if I could, you know, once, you know, the 13 week run was over, could I leave? And they said, no, they said I couldn't leave. And I guess I had a feeling judging by the ratings, which are pretty poor and all that. I just said, okay, I'll wait. And I waited till just before Christmas. And as I thought it might be, Stephanie Miller was canceled. So, you know, they gathered everyone for the big sad announcement. But inside, I, I felt bad because I was sort of happy because now I didn't have to deal with leaving a show or trying to get out of a contract. So that ended. And I think maybe just in January after the new year, I started at Dennis Miller Live. But you never told Eddie that there was a chance you might not be able to do it. No, no, I didn't. You know, I went, I got the offer and I, yeah, I went, I said, that's great. I'd love to, I accept, I, I think. It's hard to remember the exact uh, chain of events. Yeah, but I did go and they said no. And I said, okay, you know, I, I understand. Thank you. Knowing that I think cancellation was looming. Now, here's something I want to talk to you about with Dennis Miller, because um, I've known a lot of people who have written for Dennis Miller. Right. For those of you in the audience, when you see somebody on television or you see them in film, you have no idea what they're like personally right. to work with. You watch Dennis Miller live and you see genius from the moment the camera goes on and the show starts to the moment it ends in the credits. You see a guy who you want in your living room. You well, want to hang out. What you say? I don't know about that well, in, your, in your living room. Well, whatever. You want a guy. You want to watch a guy that you'd want. God bless you. You want a guy that you'd want to hang out with. You want a guy that you think is cool. Um. You don't watch a show, I don't care who it is, you don't watch a show and tune it in and stay tuned if you don't like the guy. Even Archie Bunker, sorry to give a, a little reference here, right. as much as you didn't, you wouldn't want to hang with Archie Bunker, he was a huggable, lovable yeah, mess. Yeah, you, you liked him. You liked him, and you liked him most when he... And Norman Lear did this where he would change it up on you. And, you know, if, if Michael cheated, I'm sorry, if Gloria cheated on Michael, you wouldn't believe it, but he would take Michael's side, you right. know, or, you know, you, he, he still had a heart. Yeah, he had a moral compass that you understood. And so, but Dennis Miller, for those who worked with him, had a different side, a different reputation. A guy who is one of the toughest guys to work with in the offices of any host or talk show host or actor there was. A guy who was demanding, who had no filter, who 
almost was the kind of guy who, you know, when you get a text or an email from somebody and email and text don't reflect tone and you're right. reading it and you're like, wow, what a fucking asshole. I can't hmm. believe he said that to me. And then you approach the person who emailed you and they're like, no, I didn't mean it that way or right. whatever. I don't believe in my heart that Dennis Miller premeditatedly wanted to do things that made people on his staff dislike him and not want to work with him. I do believe when you're a genius and you're driven the way you are and you have those internal mechanisms, you're just going and same with guys like Bill Maher. You're just going and you're not really thinking about necessarily people's feelings. You're thinking about what is the end product going to be that my name and my face is on. Right. He's just thinking of the show that week. And many times I'd hear from people that would say things you wrote in the show. Boy, you know, I wonder what it was like when Dennis Miller got to his car and the tires were slashed. <laughs> I wonder how Damn. he was feeling then. I bet he wasn't in control then when he found out his tires did were slashed. Did that happen? Yes, they did. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. So, he, so there's 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 things, or the air was let out of his tires, right. or things like that. So there were writers that worked there that would try to figure out ways to get back at this guy because of the difficult working conditions that they were in. But in the end. This is the unbelievable juxtaposition of where you're in in life sometimes is that this guy is bringing you Emmys. Right. Without him, you're not getting your Emmy. Jeff Cesario worked four shows and got an Emmy. Right. Six shows, excuse me, but the fourth show with Jim Carrey got an Emmy. Jeff Cesario would sit here and say, you know, I didn't even really do anything before I got that gig and I was an executive producer. Right. He made me an executive producer. I mean, I hadn't even... You started as a story editor. Right. Jeff Cesario, I think, started as an executive producer. Not a lot of room to go. Yeah. Yeah. And then you win an Emmy. So if somebody's, you know, a lot of times in life, you're hanging around situations that are tough for you because you're in a tough environment, yet... You're winning the awards. Yeah. So do you want to leave when you're winning the awards? It's kind of like, you know, let's say if you're a guy and you're shallow and you're married to an absolute beautiful supermodel, but they don't treat you right. But you walk out every day and you're like, holy shit, everybody thinks I'm, you know, happy and I'm married to a supermodel and I'm doing whatever. Right. And so... You observed, you were there in the firing line, but the thing about you... Nobody ever saw you sweat. Right. Well, I just kind of, you know, uh, when I got hired, I went into Dennis's office. He wanted to, to meet me. And he, I think he complimented my submission. And he said something that crystallized everything that maybe made it easy. He goes, now, Hertz, just know I don't need friends. I need jokes. So that was kind of, you know, you weren't going to be his pal or go hang out at his house or anything. So he just wanted you to do your job and write great jokes and monologue material and, uh, you know, big funny pictures, you know, and don't expect to be his pal. Do you think that the people who were having a harder time adjusting in that writer's room 
were the ones that just couldn't accept the fact that you're working closely with a guy and he never wants to have lunch with you. He never wants to have a drink with you. He never wants to hang out with you. It's just a job. Were those the guys that had the most trouble? Maybe. Maybe they were needier or wanted, you know, some sort of big brother figure from Dennis or, you know, he's a super talent, so you want to be close to him. But I think where you're referring to trouble with writers on his show and all that, that happened in the first few years. I think Dennis hired as writers some old, like maybe friends from Pittsburgh or comics from Pittsburgh or people who came up with him. Ed Driscoll and people like that from Pittsburgh. Yeah, I didn't even really know the names, but I'd heard there was a lot of drama and a lot of, you know, when they won Emmys or when Dennis published a book of rants, maybe they felt they were due some compensation, you know, even though HBO owns them and all that. Uh, so there's, I know there's a lot of trouble and problems with writers before I got there, but when I got there, you know, I had never met him. I didn't know him. So there's no history. There was no, uh, you know, whatever envy or bitterness. It was just write the jokes and, you know, Dennis will come in Friday and pick the ones he likes. And that was this, that was the extent of the job. Yeah. Yeah. Every day you would write monologue jokes. There'd be the pictures from the news you'd write captions for, and you'd write a big essay, a big rant on whatever topic Dennis came up with. And he would show up at, uh, you know, 11 in the morning on Friday. That's the first time you saw him. He would walk in and insult people for about 15 minutes, and then we'd put the show together. He came in on Friday. Right. Yeah, he would just have the material messenger to his house every night, you know, after it was written. And I think he would, you know, every day he would select what he wanted to see on Friday. And the show aired Friday Night Live. I think, uh, I mean, to me, like that tells you what a genius this guy is because he he knows his voice so well, he knows what he wants to say and it's so specific. Yeah. But you're, everything's on teleprompter. And for those of you in the audience that don't know how this works, it's like the camera that's on him. Well, depending on how he wanted it, there's two ways it can go. If the camera is a big ass sitcom-y kind of talk show Letterman camera, the words are coming to him looking into the eye of the camera. They're just scrolling down and somebody on a computer is scrolling it down. If he's the kind of guy who needed more, he'd have a bigger screen somewhere else. But the way the show was shot with the audience... I don't think he did that because he couldn't possibly, because all the angles of the audience, you wouldn't be able to to do that. So right. you have to be really strong at teleprompter. And if you're doing a rant, and even if you know your voice, that rant is like literally like it was like five to seven minutes long. Right. It was so, probably harder on the guy that ran the teleprompter than it was for Dennis because Dennis was such a genius at reading the prompter and making it look like it was just coming off the top of his head. Nobody in the audience in America would ever know that there was a teleprompter. Right. And that was the genius of him. Mm -hmm. And so you had no problems while you were there. There was no, you never went home like, God, I wish he appreciated me more. Uh, Not really. Not really. It was like a good writing staff. David Feldman was there and Leah Krinsky, Jim Hanna and uh, Rick Overton. Was there the late Jim Hanna, right? Was he a large uh, African-American guy or no? No, no. Oh, that's the white guy. A a slender Southern guy. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. There are two James Hanna. Sorry. Right. But uh, that's what editing's for. Right. Um, So you had a good staff and everything was cool and you hung out and uh, was... uh, uh, I guess I had worked the, you know, 
in the previous seasons that worked the kinks out between, you know, there's like a wall between the writers and Dennis, like you said, no, we're not going to be friends, just give me jokes. So that's what I did. Cool. Yeah. And tell me what it was like being in that auditorium that night. The show is nominated for an Emmy Award. You're sitting with a group of people uh, in maybe two different rows or three different rows. Right. What are you feeling? Do you feeling like, you know, there's any hope at all of... Uh... Yeah, well, it had, it had won the previous maybe two years, so there's a lot of hope. And maybe that year they didn't have a huge competition or there was no one thing that was going to beat us. So they announced uh, the winner and we all just looked at each other and jumped up and started, you know, filed out towards the... Uh, aisle to go up on stage and stand behind Dennis. And I realized when I got to the aisle, you know, about a dozen seats in, I had forgot to look or say or touch my wife. So I had to go back and sort of fight the crowd of people coming out of the aisle and I had to go against the flow and give her a kiss and a hug and all that. Or I'd never hear the end of it. <laughs> so, it was, and that was just because it was so exciting. And we just, you know, sort of lined up behind Dennis and Dennis did the acceptance speech and then we walked off. But it was, you know, an unbelievable view from up on the stage to look at the auditorium and the, the crowd. And and do you remember anything that Dennis said to you that night as you held your Emmy and he held his? I don't. It may be just, hey, thanks, Hertz. Good job, buddy. <laughs> Maybe that's that's I, it. I know I say this a lot, and I don't want, I don't mean to harm, but I think it's important to understand the differences between artists. And as a person in the business, you have to understand the different idiosyncrasies of people and not take them personally. Right. So naturally, everybody in the world like wants to know that uh, you're grateful and you're thankful, and you're, you know, like when I leave uh, the producers that are sitting here for this podcast. Right. I want to make it a point to let them know that they did a great job and I'm really happy and I'm really grateful that they're here and well, they're just it. sitting there. What do you mean? <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't appear as if they're doing anything. They're just sitting there looking at their phones. <laughs> oh, and listening. All right. <laughs> and so that you know and I I think to myself sometimes like like I'll leave or I'll be running around and I and I'll remember that I hadn't said something if it was even one time in 30 times. And I feel like shit when I'm at home and I think, my God, I didn't tell them or I didn't say good job or whatever. Right. And when you're working with somebody who's brilliant, you realize that they thank you in different ways. Like, like if Lauren Michaels, for instance, doesn't tell a cast member in five years, good job. Yeah. Where he told you good job was he got you those tickets to the fucking Yankee game right. in the front row behind home plate. Or he invited you to dinner with Alec Baldwin and his friends and you're only one of two cast members that went. Right. Or you're on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Or you just get renewed every year. Or you get renewed. That's his thank you. That's the way he works. That's what, you know, and to me, you can't take things personally just because your life isn't structured in the way that that of, of telling people how they're doing or what's happening you have to understand everybody has a different way of acknowledging you and you know not to keep mentioning Lauren but I you know I think that I I love 
what Lauren has done. I I'm I have so much respect uh, for him. Yet, you know, if I thought if I worried about my relationship with him and right. how he reacts to me when I see him or how friendly he is or how much we talk about or or the emails back and forth and how many might be returned and how many might not be returned in a timely fashion. I mean, I'd probably buy a handgun and be like, you know, think, my, but I don't look at it that way. I look at it like, hey, I know my place right. in the history of SNL, my little place, my little impact that I've had here and there and in and, and people I work with and how many episodes those people have been a part of. And no one can take that away from me. Right. And he gave he gave me a voice he gave me, he treated me like I belonged even when I didn't belong. He watched my talent. He tested the talent that I worked with. He gave people I worked with the ability to host a premiere episode of SNL and another episode of SNL. And, you know, uh, and the people that I was responsible with their talent and mine, you know, one person, Daryl Hammond, was the longest-running cast member in history. Right. Daryl's great. Um, Tracy Morgan went off to do many, many shows with Lorne and produce many things with Lorne. Um, you know, I, I, I look at the things that happen, you know, Jay Moore, Jim Brewer, and... Even though Lauren Michaels doesn't come up to me every time I see him and says, hey, buddy, I just want you to know, thank you for introducing me to Tracy Morgan because we've had a great run. I don't need that. Right. I know that he appreciated people like me who had their roles and came into their roles and did what they did. And his role was just to take what I gave him and help them become stars. Right. And that's the same way with Dennis my role was to give him jokes and material for him to tell. And the thanks would be, you know, you you get to be on the Dennis Miller live staff, have a shot at an Emmy. It's a great credit. And just hearing, you know, big laughs uh, when he, did, you know, uh, told your joke on Friday night, that was very satisfying. And it's great because, you know, as a writer, the joke's going to be delivered far better than you thought it could be. Now, one thing I just want to share as a writer that you share with the audience this is something that you uh, can't help but doing as a writer. Um, count jokes. Right. How many you got on? How many, how many you got on mm -hmm. and how many didn't get on? And if you go a week where you get only like one joke on or none on. Yeah, you think you're going to be fired. That's it. Your career is over. You think you're going to be taken out. Because even though the head writer and executive producer of the show, his job it is to call all the material and not have people's names on the jokes. Dennis Miller will ask him, hey, who wrote this joke? Right. Who did this whatever? And you get a feel for something. So tell me the least amount of jokes you ever got on the show and the most. I would, well, I would uh, jokes I always got uh, my share on in the monologue. There was a couple of weeks where I came up with virtually nothing in the rant. You know, it would be a long, mo you know, long monologue, and he would take, Jokes, paragraphs, whole thoughts, whole runs. And there was a couple of times where I had nothing whatsoever in there. But, you know, I would have jokes in the monologue and the pictures at the end, so that would make up for it. But there's, yeah. So tell me how you moved from one genius huh? to another genius, Gary Shandling. Well, oh, uh, 
a season of Dennis Miller Live ended, and at a party I ran into John Regi, another of course, another stand another stand up comic, and I told him I just finished. Uh, He's you know, a great showrunner, executive producer in his own right. Yeah, and I told him I'd done a session at Dennis Miller Live, and there's another one in a few months. And he said that they had just let two writers go. Would I like to jump on and write there in between Dennis Miller Lives? So that was that. Um, so again, stand-up comics, you know, that, that fraternity is what helped. But the difference is this was the first show you were writing on that was a scripted half-hour television show. It was right. a different kind of writing. Right. How did you handle that? Uh, I I ended up writing a lot of monologue jokes for, you know, Larry's monologue. And it was not, you know, there's a lot of personalities there. You had Rip, you know, Rip Torn and Gary. Janine Garofalo. Yeah, I don't know if if she was in the cast the year I did it. I did the year before Jon Stewart came on as a full-time member. But uh, I did a lot of monologue jokes and mostly just kind of observed. It was very unorthodox schedule, sometimes... You know, uh, uh, AD would walk on and say, Gary left in the middle of a day. Gary just got in his car and left because he just felt like it and he'd go home. So it's like, all right, that's a wrap for the day. So it wasn't like a normal sitcom that was, you know, regimented and you knew exactly what was going on. So how did you transition your first sitcom? What happened? Oh, to Spin City? Yes. Uh, Well, while I was at... uh, Larry Sanders and Dennis Miller. I wrote a spec of Frasier, I think it was. Explain I, to our audience what a spec is. A Well, it's a showbiz audience, isn't it? They would know. It's just... Uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of people who listen to this that aren't in show business. A spec is a script. You pick a show and you write an episode of that show and uh, just as a writing sample, as sort of a foot in the door. And, you know, hopefully showrunners will read that and, and they'll say, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. I will meet him. And which show did you pick to write the spec script on? It was a Frasier. A Frasier. Right. And so that was your first thing you wrote. and uh, Yeah, it got into the hands of uh, Gary David Goldberg, who was in charge of Spin City. And I think the combination, I don't even know if he read it, but I think they liked that I wrote for Dennis Miller Live because Spin City was set in City Hall and you know the background was politics, so they thought I knew about politics and all that. Which uh, I didn't really know, but, it, you know, when I'm working for Dennis Miller Live, it would be the same jokes like Clinton's horny, Gorbachev has a stain on his head, Robert Reich <laughs> is short. So there was, you know, just areas you do. Uh, and you started off at one of the lowest positions. Yes, yeah, story editor, Story I guess. editor. I think the lowest thing below that is probably a uh, uh, writer's assistant and intern, correct? Right, right. getting coffee for story editors. Yeah. <laughs> So you start off as a story editor. There's a ton of people who roll in and out of that place. Right. You move all the way up to executive producer. Yeah, I stayed there in New York, did four years with Michael J. Fox, and then he retired. And then when the show got Charlie Sheen to replace Michael, it moved back to Los Angeles because I think Charlie was not allowed to leave the state at the time. (laughs) And it was also cheaper. And then uh, maybe I think the, the second year with... Charlie Sheeno's executive producer. But I sort of ran the show with uh, Gary David Goldberg and, you know, great help from a great writing staff. But, I mean, you started at the lowest rung in the ladder and in five or six years you're at the top. How does that happen? Well, yeah, I guess just hanging around. But you never, Tom, you wrote one script 
half hour script before you got that job. Just right. one that you acknowledge if there was a truth serum in their veins, they probably never read it. Probably Because they not. didn't have time. Right. So you've never written anything in your life in half hour format. And you go from the lowest rung in the ladder to the highest position, the same was, credit as the guy who created the show. In your mind, how did you do it where so many other people rolled through and didn't? They got fired. They left. They couldn't make it. What, what guess, were you doing? There was, I guess, a lot of learning on the job. You know, we were there probably two or three nights. We'd be there till three, four in the morning. And you're just total immersion. You know, it's like trial by fire. So I think it was just learning on the job, how to write a story and what the, you know, the format was and just how the shooting week went. And it's just staying there. Like, you know, every year your agent negotiates a bump in your title. And a lot of times you know, one guy's title might be co-executive producer, someone else's executive story editor. But you're all just guys sitting around the table pitching jokes and pitching ideas. So a lot of times there's no real hierarchy according to... Uh, uh, titles but but, yet, I just, but yet some people move up like you and some people don't right well i guess just being there and i guess i was decent at it or learned enough i think you when, ma- i think he made gary david goldberg feel safe maybe yeah maybe gary uh felt all right with me uh kind of I guess he felt, yeah, or maybe there's just no one else there. I'm just uh, humble. It's hard to talk about myself in grand terms, but. Oh, it's good. So um, I want to just get into the final part of this because I don't want you to be here forever. Right. Um, You're kicking me out? No, no, I'm not kicking <laughs> you out at all. I love having you. I just don't want right. you to feel like you're spending your whole life here because uh, I'm so grateful that you're here. Um, so you did a number of things uh, uh, after that where you, um People started to believe in you, like ABC's Less Than Perfect. Right. And then... Um, yeah, you did one a, season there. And you did another show that you created uh, called Married to the Kellys, where you uh, not only created an executive producer, but you wrote the title song. Yeah, uh, wrote the lyrics. Did you know you were a composer and lyricist? No, I think I just felt like I could write a few lyrics and then you would get ASCAP money. You'd get a few bucks from ASCAP every time the show aired. And so I figured, why not? So it was a few more pocketbooks and shoes for your wife is what Ex- you're saying. Yes, exactly. You've Come. met my wife? No, I haven't met your wife. Well, you, it seems like you have. <laughs> pocketbooks <laughs> and shoes. <laughs> Unless that's just a universal thing. We have nothing as men that equal that. Right. It's like you're not saying, hey, we got to have that wallet. You know, it's like you, most guys' wallet looks like an A-bomb victim from Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. It's we don't have shoes. Look at your shoes. You got we're wearing shoes that cost about seventeen dollars. Right. Uh, they're at, not. They're not cowboy boots. They're not fancy boots, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Always getting me. Mm. But uh, yes, I know. I don't know your wife, but I I, I know uh, something about uh, people without penises. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. So tell me, let's just talk a little bit about a show that you created that I just, I've never known a show that has gone in and out of a schedule so much in my life. Rules of engagement with David Spade. Tell me, I mean, as a creator and a staff, because what happens is you have your cameramen, you have your sound people, you have your set designers when you're doing a show, you have your craft service people, you have your actors. And everybody has options on things. And 
when a show's in production and going, they know they have a job. Right. And when it's off, there's this limbo. And sometimes if you're a cameraman or you're a sound person or anything, you have to take another job. Right. And so the stress on an executive producer and a, and a group to try to keep things together and bring in new people to do things and learn new th- it's 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 very difficult right how tell me how the process went for you and 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 how you handled that well it was it was uh right from the beginning we did the pilot we shot the pilot and cbs ordered uh six more episodes for a total of seven and they said we want to recast three of the parts which is you know unheard of it's not unheard of recasting one right recasting one part is probably happens i'd say 10 to 15 percent of the time recasting two cast members might happen maybe three percent of the time two percent of recasting three i'd never heard of in my life right so well we had to do it so that was maybe the one time you've heard of it so (laughs) now you've heard of it barry but we recast, and we got uh, Oliver Hudson and Bianca Kylik to play the young, uh, engaged couple. And uh, we got David Spade, like the night before the first table read. We secured David Spade, which was, you know, a huge coup. And Who were the three actors and actresses who were in those positions? I guess uh, some great actors who were or did a great job. Uh, Paolo Costanzo was replaced by Oliver Hudson, and he's gone on to do... Uh, wonderful things and kathleen rose perkins who's fantastic on episodes that's right yeah and I, I i i ask you about this because it shows actors and actresses that you can take a hit for those you don't know and haven't remembered anything or in terms of the podcast and what's said because i can't expect you to listen to everything or know the information ray romano's first job he ever booked was news radio right and he, and he got fired at the table read and they replaced him with joe rogan i think he did okay yeah he went on so to these, something yeah. these are all, and who was the lead at the on the, of the show that uh, well patrick warburton oh spades role yes a guy named greg pitts greg pitts who does yeah he's still working does tons of commercials right. and, and patrick warburton was Oh yeah, he was Patrick Warburton right. and Megan Price, the right. older married couple, is who they kept. So That's we recast right. three of the roles. We did seven episodes, and then got picked up for a full season the next year. I guess the show did pretty well behind uh, Two and a Half Men. I think it was on nine thirty Monday nights. And then the second year was the writer's strike year, so we ended up losing uh, six episodes. We did fifteen or seven episodes. We lost, so we did fifteen episodes the second year. And that's when we started to get picked up for mid-season every year. I think in CBS's eyes, the show wasn't going to be a giant breakout hit, but it was valuable because, you know, the ratings were good and they could use it to replace a failed show, which eventually became the role of rules. And, you know, also, like David Spade, um, I always looked at David Spade as the, like, I, I hope you're okay with me saying this. David Spade is like the Richard Jenny of sitcom actors. Yeah, it's a big compliment, I guess. It's like he's a guy who sort of, you know, when you're in the business, you know this guy is a monster talent and right. can and can make anything happen. Yeah, he knows where every camera is, what to where to play a joke, and he's just, always reacting. And just unbelievable, the mm-hmm. instincts that this guy has. And when you meet David Spade, 
I mean, the guy, you know, you beat him. I'm making a joke, but it's like you're meeting a guy at the time, at the, not now maybe, but at the time you're meeting guys like 50, 60 pounds, you know, he's just like this little guy. You're like, the, and he's very, very frail. It was very frail at the time uh, when he was on SNL, when I met him for the first time. And, and, but he had this power about him that was incredible, like Jenny. Right. Um, and, and again, again, you know, those in the business know what these guys can do. Those outside of the business, like CBS in the business, they yeah. say, oh, let's do this. Let's pick that. Let's not. But he always delivered. And mm -hmm. if you put David Spade in any show, he's always going to deliver. When that red light goes on. Right. He's going to be hilarious every time he opens his mouth. He's magic. And, and to me, uh, he, he'd probably kill me for saying this, but I don't care. <laughs> to me, he's the functional Andy Dick. Because the Andy... Functional Andy Dick. Because he, might, he might kill you for saying that. Because Andy Dick, <laughs> when the red light goes on, is a genius. Right. Every time, knows where the camera is, knows where everything is, always gets the huge, huge laugh. But when the light goes off, it's where's Andy? Where did Andy go? That's right. And when the light goes off for David Spade, it's like I'm here in my dressing room and I'm okay and you can count on me. Right. He's reading next week's script. Yes. And that's the difference between his career and David's career uh, because they both always hit their mark. And right. I think David Spade, if you were sitting here today... And he were in a situation where you didn't know anything about anybody's personal life. All you could judge was how they were on camera. He would say Andy Dick was brilliant. Right. Um, so I'm going to round up here. I'm going to ask you some word association. I'm going to just say a name and tell me what comes to your mind. Anything, you know, that means something to you or anything like that. John Stewart. A uh, great guy. Uh, you know, he's the guy you see on camera. He's that guy off camera. And he kind of gave me my start, I guess, in writing. So I uh, appreciate that. And big fan. Michael J. Fox. Huge fan of Michael. He, he, as far as you mentioned Spade in sitcoms, Michael J. Fox might even be, who knows, a tick above Spade, his physicality. And he would get two laughs on the way to what you thought was the only punchline in the joke. And, you know, he's now uh, got his Parkinson's disease. And I didn't even know he had it until it was, you know, announced to the world. He really kept it quiet. But he never complained. He never wanted special treatment. So just, you know, a real, real great guy. Kevin James, because you did run King of Queens for one season. Yeah, Kevin's hilarious. Nice guy. Uh, I guess I'm just saying the same thing about everyone. These are all really talented people. But Kevin's, yeah, he's big, powerful guy, intimidating at times. But, you know, he just cared about the show and, like we talked about, just the final product and wanted things to be hilarious and funny on King of Queens, which they were. David Spade. David Spade, little funny little man, funny comedy machine. Just everything about him is funny. He would, you know, he'd write scripts and there, like I mentioned, there'd be a call from the stage to say, can David say this instead of that? And I'd say, you know... For the run of the show, David can say whatever he wants, if he wants to spade it up to change things. so And that's what makes you a great writer and a great creator and a great executive producer. Because as you know, there's many people who are in your position right. that when somebody writes a joke on the floor and says it, 
over your joke, right? It pisses them off. To no, I mean, Spade made our job easier. Just any anyone who's that funny makes your job very easy. And you but a lot of writers it. feel like they the 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 comedian on the floor is cutting their balls off and making them look bad by saying a joke that's funnier than one that they worked all week on. Right. You right. didn't do that. No, no. He would he would he wouldn't write maybe uh, an entire new joke. He'd change a word. But you know, David's got his own way of talking, and that's that's what works for him. So you don't want to get in the way of that. Gary Shandling. Uh, he was uh, hilarious, of course. He was sort of aloof. I remember one time I was uh, at a urinal. He came in the bathroom and he started urinating next to me. And he turns to me and said, like, it's, it's, it's burning when I pee. Does that mean someone's talking about my penis? <laughs> and then that was, I think that may have been the only interaction I had with him during the run of the show. Because I came on after we had started. So I'm not sure he knew who I was. And I just remained in the background. Um... Gary David Goldberg. He's like uh, like the nicest grandfather you could have. There'd be, you know, he was a perfectionist. He'd want things a certain way. It could be, you know, a little maddening at times to write things over and over the way he wanted it, but it would always be better. And if you were irritated at him, the next day a pair of tickets to a Mets game would appear on your desk. Or, you know, I think the first week I worked at Spin City, I mentioned that as a big Mets fan, I'd love to see a game. Not to him. He may have just overheard it. And then the next day he walked up and handed me two tickets, you know, like right up front because he knows Fred Wilpon, the owner of the Mets. So he'd do things like that. And it's like, oh, Grandpa, what a great guy. How can I be mad at you? Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen, good guy. We became sort of friends, uh, bonded over a love of baseball. But I got the boring Charlie Sheen. I got clean and sober. Charlie Sheen, who his one reward... Every week would be after a taping, he would have a McFlurry from McDonald's, and that was his only vice. Other than that, it was on the treadmill, and it was the zone diet, and, you know, a little different than what's been going on lately. Dennis Miller. Genius, brilliant, you know, loved writing jokes for him, but I'm not his friend, as he wanted it. Got it. All right. What's your biggest disappointment in show business? My, I guess the biggest disappointment may be that Rules never caught on as a show that would be on for, you know, full seasons after full seasons, and maybe that it's not still on, but, you know, it's hard to complain about 100 episodes and seven years on the air. Your proudest moment? Maybe the 100th episode, shooting of uh, Rules, and getting that cake that said 100th episode on it. The cake was very exciting. The famous cake. Yeah, the famous 100 episode cake. And uh, last question, what advice would you have for the young comedian starting out in a basement comedy club called the Treehouse, living at home with their family, working in a shitty job, uh, to get to the point where you are as a guy who runs and creates television shows? Like, I I don't really know how I did it even. I don't know what to tell that kid, but I would say just keep writing, keep working, never say no to any job or any gig, and just always try to absorb, uh, you know, knowledge, look at people, look at people who have the, the next job up the rung from where you are and try to figure out how, how they got that and what you have to do. You know, don't, don't expect anyone to hand you anything. And just keep working hard. Awesome. Tom Hertz, this has been incredible. You have added incredible, a lot. Incredible, it has been. 
<laughs> you don't think of yourself as incredible? No, I'm kind of humble. I think I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. I think this was incredible for anybody in the business or out of the business to learn what it takes to get to the next level and to deal with adversity and, uh, and to work with uh, talented, great people and to share that insight of what they're like. I thought it was incredible. Yeah, I've, I've had a run of great people to work for. John Stewart and uh, Michael J. Fox and Charlie Sheen and Dennis Miller and Gary Shandling. So it's hard to want more than that. I mean, you're working with some of the greatest people in the world, and that's uh, what you can always hope for. And and for anybody, if you can, if you have a chance anywhere out there in the world, any job you're in, and you have the chance to work for like Ed's law firm or the greatest <laughs> law firm in the country, right. or you want to be an agent, you have a chance to work with you know Joe's agency or CAA. You know, uh, or you're in a restaurant business and you have a chance to work at a diner or the Four Seasons. Right. You always want to work with the best, and uh, you've worked with the best. And you know something? Now, anybody who needs to get a job or wants to get a job as a writer, when they work for you, they can say, I work for the best. Wow. That was powerful. I'm impressed with myself, Barry. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you. And as always, if you like the show, Tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. This is Barry Katz and another episode of Industry Standard. They say it's the glory I'll scream in Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain, it's never quite over. So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.